The Bible says he came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's all of us before we come to Christ, but he came to save us. I understand we have several visitors today. We're so grateful to have you. We pray our time together would be a blessing to you. It's my desire as a pastor, God will use this service to draw you closer to himself. If you are visiting us today, we want to make sure you have a Bible. Uh, if you uh, don't have one with you, in front of you, they said in the uh, rack, chair rack front, there's a copy of God's word. First Baptist Church, we believe the Bible and we use the Bible. We hope that you would do the same this morning, use yours. Also, in your bulletin, there is an insert of notes that you can use to fill in the blanks. The answers will be on the screens on each side here. So we hope you'll use your Bible and use your notes this morning. Uh, we've been focusing on the last several weeks on probably one of the most precious truths, the most wonderful words in all of the Bible, called grace. Grace in the Christian life. Now, we make a distinction between so this grace and salvation. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. That word grace there means God's unmerited, undeserved favor. None of us deserve to go to heaven. If it was not for God's grace, nobody would go to heaven. We're saved by grace, God's undeserved, unmerited favor. But once you're saved, there's grace offered for the Christian life. That means God's divine enablement, his strength, his power to do what you ought to do and be what you ought to be. And that's what we're focusing on this morning. In the Bible, God likens the Christian as an athlete, but also the Christian life as a race. And we see that here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to look at, first of all, what we call the Christian race. The Christian race. Look in verse 1, please. Hebrews 12, verse 1. The writer says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. I want you to notice several things. First of all, he mentions the predecessors of the race. The those that preceded us in the race. He says, to begin with, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about, means surrounded about with so great a cloud of witnesses. The word witness here does not mean spectators. It means examples. In order for us to run the race, he, God has set for, before us examples to follow. And you say, who are the predecessors? Who are the ones that we're to follow? And it's the Old Testament saints. Hold your finger right here. Go to chapter 11. And he mentions a whole bunch of Old Testament saints that we are, to, that are examples to follow in the Christian life. When he says we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, here are those witnesses. Here are those that are examples for us. Chapter 11, verse 4. Look what he says. He says, by faith, Abel. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch. Verse 7. By faith, Noah. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham. Verse, skip over to verse 20. By faith, Isaac. Verse 22. By faith, Joseph. Verse 23. By faith, Moses. Then skip all the way down, would please, verse 32. And what shall I more say, for the time would fail me, to tell of Gideon? and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David, and also, and of Samuel. So he mentions so many people of the Old Testament that are our examples to follow in the Christian life. And so that's the predecessors, Old Testament believers, and those that have run before us. 
Next, let's look at the preparation for the race. The preparation for the race. Again, it says, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about, with so great a cloud of witnesses. And he says, Let us lay aside every weight and these sin which thus so easily beset us. So how are we to prepare ourselves for the race? As an athlete, as a Christian, God set before me a race. How am I to prepare myself for the race so I can run to win? First of all, he said, let us lay aside two things. Let us lay aside every weight. You say, Pastor, what is a weight? Have you ever seen someone running a marathon, how they're dressed? They don't have army boots on or backpacks. They're dressed almost with nothing, as light as possible, so they might run to win. And the Bible says if I'm to run to win in the Christian life, I'm to lay aside every weight. Now, what is a weight to a Christian that hinders you from serving? The word weight literally means a hindrance or something encumbers us. And to the Christian, it may not be something that's sinful, but anything in your life that keeps you from serving the Lord becomes a weight. It could be a hobby. It could be a possession. It could be a practice. It could be a sport. It could be a person. Something in your life that's not necessarily wrong to have or do, but it's keeping you from doing what God would have you to do. I remember when we were much younger, our kids were involved with sports. My son was involved in uh, uh, soccer. My daughter was involved with swimming, and they would have practice two or three times a week. And we loved it. They loved it. But it went on, they began to practice on Wednesday nights. And Wednesday night is the time our church assembles themselves together for prayer meeting. And God says, forsake not to assemble themselves together. So if we were to do that, though it was not wrong, it would become a weight to keeping us from doing what we ought to do. And then my daughter, who was swimming, the meets began to be on Sunday. And so again, we cannot do that if we we're going to do what God told us to do. So what is the weight in your life? What is it in your life that's keeping you from doing what God would have you to do? In order to run, what you need to do? Lay those aside. So the first thing to lay aside, prepare yourself, is lay aside the weight. And the next one, he says, and the sin which does so easily beset us. Notice he didn't say sin in general. He says the sin that does so easily beset us. All of us have our weaknesses. We all have areas where we fail constantly. And that is what is called the sin that does so easily beset us. That area of life that you constantly trip up and fall in. And all of us have those. So in order for me to run the race effectively, I need to lay aside things that hinder me from running, but also the sin that so easily beset me. What is the sin that you struggle with? What is the area of life that you constantly fall and get back on, up on? God says to run, prepare yourself to lay aside the weight and the sin. Let us see. We saw the predecessors, the preparation, now the prerequisites uh, for the race. He's an essential ingredient to be able to run. He said, let us run with, what's it say? Patience. The race that's set before us. The word patient means endurance, perseverance. In order for us to run the race, we need to persevere. The race, the Christian life, is not a sprint. It's not a 100-yard dash. Now, when I was a teenager, I was good at a 100-yard dash. But when it comes to a 440, a mile, or longer than that, I kind of <laughs> wasn't too good. 
The Christian life is not a dash. It's a marathon from the time you get saved to the time you die. And one thing that's needed is perseverance, endurance to run the race. So the predecessors, the Old Testament saints who went before us, the preparation, lay aside weights, things that hinder you, and sin that so easily besets you. And the prerequisite, one thing I need to run effectively is endurance, perseverance. Number two, we saw the Christian race, now the proper focus. We're going to see the two of them mentioned in the Bible. Two things we're to focus on. The first one is focus or looking at the example of Christ. Looking at the example of Christ. Look in verse 2, please. What's the first word? Looking. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. The word looking means to fix your eyes upon. It means to turn from everything else and focus on Christ, on his example. And notice here it says, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? There was something set before him that caused him to endure the cross. What was it? It doesn't tell us here. Yet there's many different explanations. I think all of them. Let me give you three of them. And the one I like the best. One of them says that the joy set before him would be to accomplish the Father's will. To accomplish the Father's will. In John 4, 34, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He came to do the will of the Father, which is die on the cross to pay for our sin. And no doubt the idea of doing what the Father wanted to do was a joy to him. The next joy they thought about was his exaltation when he went back to heaven. In Philippians 2, 8, who being found fashioned as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, Jesus Christ. So whether it be doing the will of the Father or his exaltation, God in heaven. But you know the one I like the best? The joy set before him, you know what it is? Knowing one day that you would be in heaven. That he came to die for your sin, that you could spend eternity with him. And focusing on the fact that one day you will be in heaven with him for all eternity. What a joy that was to him. And that caused him to endure the cross, despising the shame, and eventually sat on the right hand throne of God. So whatever the joy was, that caused him to endure the cross. But notice now, the proper focus, number one, is looking to him, looking to his example. Two examples were set forth here. First of all, example of his endurance. He endured the cross. Example of his endurance, his perseverance. He endured the cross. Again, verse 2. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. My friend, the cross was not fun. The cross was a horrible, terrible thing. It was a terrible way to die. Any time on the cross, he could have got off in a moment's notice. The Bible said he could have called 10,000 angels to come down and deliver him from the cross. He could on his own strength step off the cross. But he chose to endure it for you, to pay your sin debt. He endured the cross. Next, he endured opposition. He endured opposition. Look in verse 3. For consider him, to my Christ, 
who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. What I found as a pastor, I've been here going on 44 years now. The greatest blessing in the ministry is also the greatest burden. You know what it is? People. <laughs> People are the greatest blessing. One thing that keeps me going is, is friends, the fellowship of God's people. But another thing that wants me to give up and quit is, the, is people. And many times we will allow people, things they do, the things they say, to make us quit. Jesus not only endured the cross, he endured the opposition of people, of sinners. He kept on keeping on. I've seen so many Christians give up the ministry because of what, what someone said about them. But someone said to them, they just throw in the towel and give up. And so we need to endure the cross, his example, but also endure the opposition. But this example of Christ's endurance, next is our motivation not to quit. Our motivation not to quit. In the latter part of verse 3, it says, Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. One thing will cause us to give up and quit is the opposition of other people. People talking bad about you. People making fun of you. They're saying th bad things about you. Whatever it is, Christ set the example of not to quit, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. Galatians 6, 9, look on the screen there, please. And let us not be weary in what? Well-doing. For in due season you shall reap if we, what? Faint not. So as we run the race, the proper focus, number one, is looking to Jesus' example. Number two is looking to God for his grace. Remember the word grace means what? God's strength, God's power, his enablement. Look down to verse 15, please. Verse 15. What's the first word in verse 15 in Hebrews 12? Here we see it again, looking. Not only looking unto Jesus, but verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. The idea is looking to God for grace and strength. Look up here, please. Thank you. There's so much God tells us to do, we cannot do in our own power. Somebody said the Christian life is a supernatural life. That only can be lived in supernatural power. And there's so much God tells you, commands you to do, you cannot do in your own strength. Now remember, we're told to prepare ourselves for the race to lay aside every weight and what? The sin. You know what sin caused so many people to fail? Is the sin of self-dependency. You enter the Christian life and you think you can live it in your own strength. Your own strength may make you successful at job and, and, and at work and, and athletic events. But your strength will not make you successful in the ministry. He provides that strength that's called grace. And so he gives us three things we need grace for. And all of them are difficult to do. First of all, back up in verse 14. He says, follow what? Peace with how many men? How many realize some people are hard to get along with? If you don't know that, you're going to be shocked. <laughs> Even in the ministry, there's people hard to get along with. You say, Pastor, really? Yes. It's just part of the ministry. And he says, follow peace all men. You say, Pastor, I can't do that. But not without God's strength, can you? So God tells you to follow, pursue peace, and he gives you the grace 
the enablement, the strength to do so. In fact, Romans 12, 18 says this. He says, if it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. I love what it said there. Paul recognizing how other men are, Paul included the words, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you. That means as far as it depends upon you, let there be peace. If you have problems with another person, make it not your problem. Make it their problem. You do everything you can to make peace work. And that's what it means, as much as possible, because sometimes it may not be possible. But as much as it depends on you, you choose to do right and not responsible for the lack of peace. Number two, the second thing. Not only grace to live peaceably, but the grace to live holy. The grace to live holy. Look again in verse 14. He says, Christian, follow, pursue peace with all men. And what? Holiness. What is holiness? That refers to righteousness, purity, godliness. How many realize in this world it's hard to live a clean, pure life? We have so much what do you call it? Temptation that pulls us from this world, pulls us from Christ. And yet we're told, we're commanded to live a holy life. In fact, he tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. 1 Peter 1, 15, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation, lifestyle. I'm commanded, you're commanded to live a holy life. So, Pastor, that's very difficult. My friend, you can't do it in your own strength. What do you need? Grace. You need God's help. Grace to live peaceably. Grace to live holy. And thirdly, grace to serve acceptedly. Skip down to verse 28, please, Hebrews 12. Wherefore, we receiving a, the kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have what? There's that word, God's strength, God's enablement, whereby we may serve acceptably with reverence and godly fear. The word acceptably means well-pleasing. My friend, it's difficult to please the Lord in this world. But God says, I'll give you the strength to live peaceably. I'll give you the strength to be holy. I'll give you the strength to please me. It's called grace. Number three. We saw the Christian race. We saw the proper focus. Number three, the falling short. The falling short. Look again in verse 15. He says, looking diligently. In other words, the proper focus, look to Christ and his example, look to God and his grace. But he says, looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God. The word fail means to fall short. In order for me to live peaceably, to live holy and live acceptably, I need God's grace. You know what that means? God's grace is available and accessible to every Christian. Last week we talked about behind every command of God is the grace of God. So when God commands you to do something, God's grace is available. But the problem is many times we seek to do it in our own strength and we fail to access God's grace. The successful Christian life as a Christian who lives his life and by the grace of God, by dependence upon him. So, Pastor, what happens if I fail the grace of God? I'm glad you asked. Look at it again in verse 15. 
looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God. And it goes on to say, lest any root of what? Bitterness springing up. So bitterness is a result of falling short, of failing. If you try to do what God would have you do in your own strength, you fail to access his strength, my friend, it creates bitterness in the life of a Christian. Now, what is bitterness? By the way, are you bitter? If there's somebody in your life that hurts you, that causes you much pain, that you have much bitterness and anguish over? Bitterness, listen carefully. Bitterness means resentment, hard feelings that can create anger and hostility. Many people, even Christians, live a life of bitterness. They have hard feelings, resentment towards someone who hurt them. Bitterness. Bitterness is a mental or emotional state that corrodes or eats away at a person who possesses it. Don't miss that now. Bitterness is a mental or emotional state that corrodes or eats away at the person who possesses it. Someone said this. Bitterness is like an acid which destroys the container that houses it. In other words, people think, well, that person so angry. I resent them. I'm so bitter at them. And they think that's going to hurt the other person. And the reality, it begins to eat and hurt you. Number two, bitterness acts on the mind in the way poison acts on the body. Bitterness acts on the mind in the way poison acts on the body. It goes on, in other words, bitterness, resentment toward another person is like swallowing poison and expecting the other person to die. They think, since I'm angry and bitter, then that's going to make them suffer. No, it's not. It's going to make you suffer. And so many Christians are eaten up with bitterness because of what somebody's done to them. So bitterness is a result of falling short. Let it be bitterness is the root of all kinds of problems. Bitterness is the root of all kinds of problems. It says any root of bitterness springing up and what? Troubles you and thereby many be defiled. If I have bitterness in me, it's not going to hurt other people. It's going to eat away at me. It's going to trouble me and eventually other people will be defiled by it. Notice here, bitterness is a root, the root of bitterness. And roots are not always visible on the surface. However, they can produce all kinds of destructive emotions and ungodly behavior. Let me give you some of the destructive emotions bitterness produces. Go with me now to Ephesians chapter 4, please. Ephesians chapter 4. Be page 1648 if you're using a church Bible. Here it mentions destructive emotions and ungodly behavior that bitterness produces. Now, please don't let me lose you. I'm trying to help you this morning because bitterness will destroy your life if you allow it to remain there. Look in Ephesians 4. Notice the first three words. Let all what? Verse 31, by the way. Verse 31. Let all what? Now stop there. The next words that follow are manifestations of bitterness. If a man or woman's bitter, he'll exhibit these things in his, her, his her life. Read on. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. 
Notice there's three destructive emotions mentioned here. It begins to say, let all bitterness and what? Wrath. Now, what is wrath? Wrath is explosive, fits of rage, outbursts of angry emotions. When I think of wrath, I think of my mom's brother, my uncle. When I was just a boy, probably seven, eight years old, we lived in Clearwater, Florida. We drove over here. They lived in Land Lakes. Went over there because my mother wanted to vi visit his, her brother. And we pulled up to the yard, and parked in the yard. We got out of the car. We heard shouting and screaming and crashing inside the house. And, and so we, 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 nobody, we looked at each other. And we, so we walked up the door. My dad knocks on the door. And my uncle comes in the door. Hey, come on in. Glad to see you. And we went inside. And interesting, uh, we went inside for about an hour. And they talked to each other. My brother and I just sat there. And no one spoke about the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room was a dining room chair sticking out of the wall. <laughs> it is my uncle, he got so angry, he was shouting and screaming at my, his wife and picked up the dining room chair and threw it across the room and ran right in the wall. The leg sticking out of the wall. Nobody said anything. So we walked, after it was over, we went outside and got in the car and drove. I said, Dad, what was that chair doing in the wall? And he said, your uncle has a problem with anger. And you know what's sad? Many of you may have that problem. And you can trace it back to bitterness. Now, the second emotional destruct destructive emotion, not only wrath, but anger. What is that? Anger is internal hostility. They don't show it on the outside. They boil and seethe on the inside. They come across more godly. In other words, the, the personal wrath, everybody knows he's ungodly because <laughs> you can see it by his actions. But the other kind, he, he looks good outwardly, but inside he's boiling. He's seething, can't wait to get even. That's the other kind. That's a result of bitterness. The third destructive emotion, the, la the last word in that verse is malice. Malice is the ill will, a desire to injure or do harm. They have, because of bitterness, either they shout and scream outwardly, they bawl inwardly, but all the time they had the desire to hurt somebody, to hurt the one who's wronged them. That's the destructive emotions. But now notice the ungodly behavior. Two words talking about behavior. The first three are emotion. The next one is ungodly behavior. He says, and clamor. What is clamor? Clamor is outbursts of anger, such as yelling, shouting, and screaming. Because of anger, they shout. And that's what we heard when we drove up my uncle's house. I mean, just shouting and screaming. You know what's sad? This describes many Christian homes. There's many Christian people at home. They don't, nobody in church, they find church are fine. But at home, they blow up, they scream, they shout. That's called malice. And you could trace that all the way back to bitterness. The next ungodly behavior is the word evil speaking. Evil speaking. Words that use for the purpose to hurt, to harm another person. Now, my uncle, eventually my uncle and his wife got a divorce because he was physically abusive. But not only was he physically abusive, he was verbally abusive. And that's evil speaking. Some of you would not dare hurt your spouse, but boy, do you hurt them with your words. 
You say things that cut them to the quick. That's evil speaking. Why do they do that? All the way back to bitterness. They're bitter on the inside towards somebody or towards someone. Now, pastor, what's the remedy? I'm glad you asked. He gives us two of them here. Look at it again. First of all, the remedy is kindness and forgiveness are the remedies. Kindness and forgiveness. Look in verse 32, Ephesians 4, 32. After he said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Verse 32, and be kind one to another and tenderhearted, forgiving one another. This is where grace is needed. The person who's hurt you, the person who's created so much pain in your life, the person you're so angry at, it's hard to be kind. You want to be just the opposite. You need grace. You need God's help do that. By the way, this is not a suggestion. It's God's command. God commands you to be kind. Pastor, I can't do that. You can't in your own strength, but you can with his. It's called grace. Notice kindness is an action. It is not an emotion. Dr. Clyde Nermo said this. He's in heaven now. But he says emotions, everybody has them. And they're all out there. You cannot control your emotions, but you can control your actions. God does not judge a person for wrong emotions, but he judges a person for wrong actions. The problem is we let our emotions control our actions instead of letting our actions control our emotions. So God's trying to get the cart here turned around. He said, you've been angry, now you explode and holler and say words that hurt people. He says, now be kind. Choose the right actions and eventually the emotions will follow. It's hard to be angry and hurtful toward a person you're kind to. You show kindness and continue to with God's help, God's grace, and eventually the emotions will follow. The second one is forgiveness. Now, please listen carefully. I'm going to speak on, this is part one of a two-part message. I'm going to talk about forgiveness next week in great detail. Because this is where so many Christians suffer. They have a hard time. And yet God commands you to forgive. You say, Pastor, that's easy preaching hard living. Yes, it is. But he gave you the grace to do what he commanded. Behind every command of God is what? The grace of God. Now, notice real quickly, we're about to wrap it up here. Three things about forgiveness. Now, I'm going to spend a whole message next week on forgiveness. Because some of you here today... You have bitterness, resentment, and ill feelings towards someone because you refuse to forgive. Forgiveness is a choice that you must choose to do, whether you feel like it or not. Pastor, they don't deserve it. Pastor, what they deserve is this, <laughs> or whatever it is. But God says, forgive. Now, please come next week. Three things about forgiveness. Write it down, and we'll wrap it up. First of all, it talks about the model for forgiveness. The model for forgiveness. He said in verse 32, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. What, who's the model? God's the model. So the model, the way I should forgive others, the, the pattern to follow is God himself. Forgiving one another, even as God has forgiven you. The measure. How much, pastor? The measure, Ephesians 4.32, forgiving one another, even as God. I am to forgive others even as God has forgiven me. 
The word even as means just as, in proportion to, to the degree that. So the measure of our forgiveness of others is in proportion to or to the degree that God's forgiven you. Now think about how much has God forgiven you. We're going to talk more about that next week. So the model is God himself. The measure, I'm to forgive others the way God's forgiven me. And thirdly, the motive. The motive. The motive for forgiveness, he goes on to say, forgiving one another, even as God, for whose sake? Christ's sake has forgiven you. What would motivate God to forgive you? Did God forgive you because you're good? Did God forgive you because you promised to throw a new leaf? Did God forgive you? Did you merit his forgiveness? Did you deserve his forgiveness? Now think about this. We withhold forgiveness from other people because we want them to suffer. We want them to do change. We want them to merit it or to be different. I find God didn't require that of you. The motive, why did God forgive you? For Jesus' sake. Because what Jesus did for you, God forgave you. And so, the, and we're going to talk more about this in greater detail next week. So the model is God. The measure is that God forgave given us. And the motive is for Jesus' sake. Let's, I want to get two more verses and we'll be done. I want you to look to a, a book right before Hebrews. Let go of Hebrews. Go now, if you will, please. Um, um, did I give you the motive there? The motive for, to forgive to others is on account of what Christ has suffered and done for us. That's the motive. Now, turn to Philemon. Can you find that? Philemon, it's a pastor. I never heard of it. That's on Philemon. The little small book, one chapter before Hebrews. This verse, Philemon, chapter, only one chapter, verse 18. Page 1681. Thank you. You've been a good audience. Good. Thank you for listening. Thank you for turning with me. Philemon. Here's a wonderful truth in this book. When you find Philemon, let me give you the background of this book so you understand what's being said here. Philemon was a very wealthy man who had many servants. He's a man the Apostle Paul led to Christ. And Philemon had a servant. His name was Onesimus. Onesimus did Philemon wrong. He did him wrong. He stole from him and he fled. He went to another town. And guess who was in that town? While he was in that town, Onesimus did other things wrong. He was arrested and put in jail. But guess who was in jail with him? The Apostle Paul. He was in there for preaching the gospel. So Paul led Onesimus to Christ. And after he did that, he found all about Onesimus, what he'd done, how he wronged Philemon. He said, Onesimus, you need to go back and make it right. God's forgiven you, and he wants you to go back and make it right. So Paul wrote the book of Philemon, gave it to Onesimus, said, go back to Philemon and hand him this letter. In this letter, look what he said with me in verse 18. Here he's speaking to Philemon about Onesimus. If he, in other words, Philemon, if Onesimus has wronged you and he owes thee aught, put that to what? My account. Now, did Onesimus wrong him? Yes. Did Onesimus owe him aught? Yes. But he said, whatever he owes you, put it to my account. Now, Philemon owed Paul tremendously because Paul led him to Christ. Now, look over here, please. This is exactly what Jesus said by his actions on the cross. 
when Jesus died on the cross, bearing our sin and shame, while on the cross, please listen, he said, Father, and I want to use myself here. Can I do that? He said, Father, if David's wronged you, if David owes you art, alt, put it to my account. Hallelujah, he did. In the Old Testament, it said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. My sin was placed to his account, and he punished Christ for what I've done. Isn't that good news? If I pay for my sin, I have to go to hell. But Christ said this, Father, and use your name. If he's wronged you, if she wronged, have you wronged God? We all have. Do you owe God all? Yes, we owe him a penalty. Jesus said, put it to my account. And the Bible said, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What good news. When Jesus died on the cross, on that cross, God took your sin debt and placed it to his account. The one who knew no sin became sin for you, and God punished him for what you've done wrong. He died for you. He paid for your sin. He was buried, and what? He rose again. And God says, I'll forgive you. I'll give you a home in heaven at the expense of my son. How many can say praise the Lord? Amen. He did that for you. Now, come back next week, please. We'll continue our study on forgiving. If you are struggling forgiving someone who's wronged you, my friend, everybody struggles with that at times. But God has a remedy and a way to deal with that. Please come back next week. We'll talk more about that next week. But I want to close with this. First of all, thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. If you're here today, let me ask you a quick question. I ask this every Sunday because I want to make sure if someone here doesn't know this can have an answer to it. If you were to stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What answer would you give him? Now, let me give you the most popular answer. By the way, it's the wrong answer, but it's the most popular. Lord, why should I let, let you let me in heaven? I'm a good person. I do things wrong, but overall, I'm pretty good. I go to church. In fact, I was in church when Pastor, Preacher, Pastor Peterson preaching. I go to church. I, occasionally, I read the Bible. I pray. I try to help people in need. I'm a good person. And because of all the things I've done, you should let me in heaven. My friend, that will not get you to heaven. The Bible says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, because mercy had saved you. What's the right answer? Why should you let me in heaven? Because what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. And I've received him as my Savior. And it's through his work, his price, I can go to heaven. Christ will come, come on in. Have you ever received Christ to be your Savior? Has there been a time in your life you've trusted him as your only hope for means for heaven? Let me close with this verse, and we'll conclude with it. I want to extend an invitation. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. Who's that? Us. That he gave his only begotten son. Who's that? Jesus Christ. That whosoever would believe, trust, rely upon him, should not perish. Means you will not go to hell, but you'll have, I love it, everlasting life. That God will forgive you. Heaven becomes your home. All because of what his son did for you on the cross. Your part is to believe, to receive, to trust Christ as Savior. Have you done that before? If you have, rejoice. 
heaven drama. If not, why not do it today? Let's bow together, please. As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, could it be that God is speaking to you about the need of his forgiveness? The need of his salvation? If you were to stand before God and God would ask you, why should you enter my heaven? What answer would you give? Is it because of something you are doing or something that you have done or something you're going to promise to do? Or is it all because of what he has done for you? Number two is the answer. Because of what he's done for you. And you need to receive what he's done for you by faith. And trust him to be your savior to give you eternal life. If you have never done that before, why not do it right now? Right where you're sitting, you can talk to the true living God and you can receive Christ as your savior. You can trust him to give you eternal life. You say, Pastor, i like to do that today. Then why not talk to God and, say, and tell him that? Maybe say something like this. Just say, dear God of heaven, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. And because I've sinned, I've earned, I deserve your punishment. I owe you all. But God, I believe that Jesus died in my place to pay for my sin. The penalty that I owe, he paid for on the cross. He died for me, he was buried, and I believe he rose again. And God realized that I cannot save myself. I'm trusting Christ to save me and forgive me and give me eternal life. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. How many say, Pastor, that made sense to me? I have never done that before, but today for the first time, I trusted Christ to be my Savior. If you did that today, I'd like to know that. I want to pray for you. I'm not going to point you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. But I'd like to pray for you, include you in the closing prayer. So with heads bowed and eyes are closed, no one to be put on the spot. If that made sense to you and you prayed with me to receive Christ as your Savior, would you simply raise your hand so I can pray for you and put your hand back down? And we're all, Pastor, that made sense to me. I trusted Christ as my Savior. Would you pray for me this morning? I did that today for the first time. God bless you. Amen. Anyone else? Pastor, that made sense to me. I trusted Christ. Anyone else real quickly? God bless you. Pastor, I did that today. Would you pray for me also? Heads are bowed and eyes still closed. Christian, have you been trying to do what God tells you to do in your own strength? And you're failing? In fact, when it comes to forgiveness, you have not done that? Because you say, I can't do that. You don't know what that person's done to me. Yet God says, forgive. My friend, what you need is grace. It's available, accessible to you. Let's come unto him. How many say, Pastor, whether it be forgiveness somewhere in my life, I'm struggling. And I need God's help. Would you pray for me too? Anyone all? Yeah, oh my goodness, all over. Pray for me, Pastor. I'm struggling with something in my life. I need God's help. Would you pray for me too? Yes, yes, yes. Father in heaven, first of all, we thank you for the two. But in the case of your hand, they, came, they trusted you as Savior. Because of that, heaven is now their home. They have eternal life. They have a home in heaven. We rejoice in that. Father, so many believers here today, those who are already saved, are struggling with something you've told them to do. And Father, because they're trying to do it in their own strength. And they failed. Oh, how we fail the grace of God. Father, I pray that you begin, they would begin to access your help, your strength. And do that which you called them to do with your help. Father, help us to avail ourselves and use the grace of God to do what you called us to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.